If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of Psalms, looking at the fifth Psalm this morning. Um, With all the uh, change in our church in this month, and frankly, probably a Sunday where I will not be here, um, whenever, depending on when uh, my wife goes into labor, uh, we are going to spend this month of January in Psalms. So each week we're going to be looking at a different one. Uh, We're going to have a few guest speakers come in and preach the word to us in this month. And then in February, we'll begin a uh, series going through the book of Exodus. But uh, in this month of January, we're going to be looking at a different psalm each week from a different section in the psalms each time we look. Today, we're looking at Psalm 5, the fifth psalm. should be on the screen behind me if you don't have it yet. Psalm 5 says this, To the choir master... For the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my King. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them from you, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. What is the difference between a hippo and a zippo? One is really heavy and the other is a little lighter. What's the difference between the bird flu and the swine flu? One requires treatment and the other an oinkment. What's the difference between spring rolls and summer rolls? They're seasoning. That is the worst introduction I have ever given as the pastor of this church. But it was all I had this week, (laughs) so it's what you got. What is the difference between a righteous person and a wicked person? I think that's the the question that today's psalm spends a lot of time answering. In this psalm today, we'll be able to see five differences between the righteous and the wicked in today's text, in today's psalm, Psalm 5. Five differences between the righteous and the wicked. The first difference that we see in our text today between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous begins with God. He begins with God. Look at the first three verses there. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. 
David here is crying out to God. He's asking God to hear his words, to turn his attention toward David as David prays, because David's praying to God. That's his audience. That's who he's talking to and who he's crying out to. David isn't going anywhere else with his petitions here. He's not looking for help from any other place. As soon as he needs something, as soon as he comes up against his enemies, he doesn't see how it goes on his own and then turn to God. No, he immediately goes to God. He starts with God, not anywhere else, not anyone else. But notice the way he's approaching God here, the language that he uses. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. You see, he's not just asking God. He's not just flippantly throwing something out to the God of the universe to see uh, what he thinks or what he says. He's pleading with him. He's not mumbling prayers out of habit. He's actively engaged. He's emotionally attached to what he's saying. For David, this is a costly, this is a painful prayer. He does speak words, but he speaks so much more than just words here. He's crying. He's groaning. One of the commentators I read this week mentioned this idea related to God who who knows and hears us, even when our words don't do our prayers justice. He said this, he said, he who will not quench a smoking flax can hear a breath as well as a cry, a moan as well as words, a meditation as well as a speech. And we know that's true from Romans 8.26, which I know all of you in this room have memorized because that's what we spent the year of 2023 doing together, memorizing Romans chapter 8. So surely you have this verse committed to your memory already. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When the groans are too deep, God still hears. He still knows. And the righteous still goes to him with these groans before he goes anywhere else. And for David, what this looked like was beginning his day with God. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The righteous begins with God before he does anything else. This is how his day begins, by crying out to God. And I think that early cry shows the depth of feeling here that David is so consumed by his groans, so consumed by his fears and trepidations, so desperate for God's power and protection that when he gets up, his first thought, his first instinct is that he should petition God for help in that day. But I also think there's just something to the idea of starting your day with God. I don't want to be too legalistic here. I think evening devotions count just as much as morning devotions. I think lunchtime prayers are also helpful and effective. They get heard by God too. You don't have to beat the sunrise for it to count as real devotion time, as real time with God, as real time in the Word or praying. But I do think that there's something to the idea of starting your day with God before you do anything else. It shows where your first priority lies. It sets you up for the rest of your day. On this December 31st, I think there's something that we can take from this idea about starting your year with God in the same way. I've mentioned it the last few weeks, every announcement, uh, talked about in a few different sermons, that I am encouraging all of us to do the same Bible reading plan together as a church. 
What the, the plan that we're doing is a chronological plan, which is something I've always found fun and edifying. I think it's a, a good way to see God's story unfold in our time, where sometimes whenever you're reading through the Bible, because it's not in a timeline order, you might be able to get confused. This should be able to make it a little bit simpler, a little bit easier to read, just like it's a story. I think it would be helpful for you to do that with us so that we can all keep each other accountable, so that we can all be roughly on the same page, learning and growing together as a church as we do this. I think it is a helpful practice to do that plan, to do that reading for that plan first thing in the morning. I think there's something to this idea of starting your day with God, by crying to God. That's what the righteous one does here in this psalm. I think you're going to be aided if you will buy that same ESV chronological Bible, that, that same one that I've been encouraging you to do. I think it's going to make your life easier to navigate with that reading rather than trying to flip back and forth. They're, they're releasing a podcast with the day's reading read for you. All you have to do is listen to it. That's incredibly simple, incredibly easy to be able to take the Bible in in that way. So even if you aren't able to read it every day, surely you can listen to it. You can find 15 minutes to do that. If you're not able to get one of those Bibles, if you hear me say that every week and you go, I just can't do it. We just can't spare it. I can't get it in time. Come talk to me. I think there are a few things that our church budget would do better than buying the Bible for someone who's trying to read it, okay? If you want that Bible, if you will do the plan, come talk to me. We can get you one of those Bibles. I can point you toward one of those podcasts. I think on this last day of 2023, it is important for you to plan to begin your year of 2024 with God, by crying out to God, by being in communion, relationship with Him, through understanding what He has said. Let 2024 be the year that you begin a lifelong habit of Bible reading and prayer, if you haven't already. That's what the righteous one does. He begins with God. But the wicked is the enemy of God. That's the second difference between the righteous and the wicked in today's psalm. The wicked is the enemy of God. Look at verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God cannot dwell. He cannot have a relationship with wickedness. Oil and water, orange juice and toothpaste. Can't mix. They don't go together. God takes no delight in anything that is wicked. And that's important for us to remember here for two clear implications of this idea in this spot. First, the, the righteous one here was crying out to God, but now it's talking about how God can't dwell with wickedness. So you have to be able to see the connection here that David, the righteous one, is crying out for God to hear him, but acknowledging, remembering even, that God takes no delight in wickedness. Therefore, I think the groans of the wicked likely fall most often on deaf ears. The righteous not only cried out to God, but he gets heard. And I think it's rarely so for the wicked. You should also think here that if God is omnipresent, and he is, if he is everywhere all the time, and yet he can't dwell with evil, then for those of us who are evil, 
those of us who remain in our wickedness, where is there for you to go? Where will you spend your time? To whom will you talk? If that's you, though you can't get away from God, he's not present with you in the same sense that he is with the righteous. And that just sounds like such a lonely prospect to me. That has to be difficult, has to be hard to go through life with only your evil to comfort you. Evil can't dwell with him, and it's hated by him, the text says. The boastful shall not stand before his eyes. The one who is proud before him doesn't get his presence or his care. He hates all evildoers. He destroys those who speak lies. He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God hates evil. And according to this, he therefore hates the one who is evil. I know that's not language we typically hear or think about or use. So many of us, we have this idea that since God is love, and he is, that he cannot, he, he does not hate. Growing up, I remember hearing this idea from other Christians all the time. God doesn't hate. He can't hate. He wouldn't hate. But I think this psalm directly contradicts that idea. He doesn't delight in wickedness. He won't dwell with evil. He hates here not just the evil, but it says the evil doer. He's going to destroy those who do the evil of speaking lies. He abhors, sounds like hate to me, the deceitful and the violent. God's doing a lot of hating here in this psalm. So I think if you're someone who has this idea that God doesn't, that he can't hate, I think you have to reckon with what's being said here. You don't get to ignore it in favor of the God that you've created. We as Christians, I think we have to have a better understanding of how God can be loved all the way through, simply, truly, completely, because he is, and yet also hate that which is evil. We have to be able to see how both of those things can coexist at the same time. We have to have a a greater understanding of what love really is of what love really means. We have to remember that to truly love something actually requires hating that which would destroy the thing you love. Therefore, God hates evil. He hates the evildoer, the one who would destroy that which he loves. And we might prefer it if God didn't hate. It might be easier on us for us to have a God who just kind of winks at evil who sees it, doesn't like it, but, you know, what can you do? Peace, love, one world. It would be easier for us to have that kind of God. But God won't wink at evil. He doesn't look the other way when it comes to evil. He hates it. It can't dwell with him. It's his enemy here. So that means for someone like me, Someone like us, we who are evil, who have done evil, then we have to know that our evil actually makes us the enemy of God. But for the one who is made righteous, he doesn't stay that way as God's enemy. He responds to the fact of God's love toward his people and hate toward evil by going straight to God. 
That's the third difference between the righteous and the wicked in today's verses. The righteous goes straight to God. Look at verses 7 and 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. God is the enemy of the wicked, and he hates evil. But for David, the one who represents righteousness here, he gets to enter God's house. He's welcome in God's house. He doesn't have to knock. He has full walk-in privileges, full pop-in privileges. When I was growing up, there were two houses on our street, other than ours, that had kids that would come outside and play sometimes, that were roughly our age. And in one of those houses were some kids that just drove my parents crazy. They just couldn't stand these kids. Every time we played with them, something got broken. Every time something went wrong on the street, everyone, every time someone said, what happened to that mailbox? We know exactly what happened to that mailbox. They did. Those kids happened to it. They were always the ones at fault. But they always wanted to play. But they always wanted to play at the worst possible time. We're about to leave out the door. We just got in trouble, and that's when they knock. They would come and knock on our door, and for some reason, my dad, who was the one who, let's say, disliked them the most in our family, he was always the one who answered the door. And the littler of the two would always, after he opened it, he'd say, can my friends come out to play? Which you might hear and think, oh, how sweet, how innocent. But he called us his friends because he did not know our names. He had no idea who we were. He didn't care about us. He didn't care about what we did or what trouble we got in with him. It was just he was bored. And he knew these kids will try to help me alleviate some of my boredom. So then my dad would always say, no, not today. He, he didn't like those kids. He didn't trust those kids with, frankly, pretty good reason. So eventually my parents told us if we wanted to go play with them, we could, but they weren't allowed in our house. We weren't allowed to go into their house. But the other house on the street, the other one that had kids in that one that we would go outside and play with sometimes, they were kids that went to our church. He was on my basketball team. He was in my grade. My mom told us all the time. She told them all the time. Every time she saw them, she would say, man, I'm so thankful for them. So thankful for their friendship, for the way that you guys interact and play and grow and love each other. She told them all the time that they were welcome in our home, that her dream was that they would feel like they didn't have to knock to go walk in. That whenever they wanted to play, they could just walk in and find us in our homes. That they were always welcome there. Do you, do you see the difference there? I mean, the house is the same. The house doesn't change from one to the other. But one group is welcome. They can walk right in. We would love to have them around. While the other, they're barred from entry. They have to wait outside. Now, now you might hear that and think less of my parents, less of my family, less of my upbringing. Maybe we should have extended the same hospitality to both groups. But it's not like either kids were perfect. It's not like the, the quote-unquote good ones actually earned their way to just walk into our home. No one can honestly earn their way to just walk into your home. There's nothing you can do to deserve that. 
And the bad kids, whatever reasons it was that we got there, had somehow unearned the opportunity to play with us, to be welcome in our home. The invitation, the the warmth of the welcome, when it exists, is due ultimately not to the perfection of the kid, but to the love and the warmth of the homeowner. They didn't have to be welcome in our home, either of them. But because of the grace and mercy, the love of my parents, they wanted to welcome one group, and they wanted to protect from another group. Notice in the psalm why David says that he can enter the house. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. He doesn't say, but I, because I nailed it, will enter your house. He doesn't say, but I, because I'm perfect, will enter your house. But I, because I deserve it, will enter your house. But I, because I'm going to make your house better, will enter your house. He says, no, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. He knows he's not worthy of it. He knows he doesn't deserve it. And yet he's able to enter. He's welcome there because of the character and love of the homeowner, not because of the character and love of David. Now, there is something there, too, that's connected to the righteous one's acknowledgement of his acceptance based only on the love of God. I mean, the, the humility that's shown in knowing that he shouldn't be accepted, I think that's part of why he is accepted there. It's what allows him to continue to walk in the fear of God, to continue to be led in God's righteousness. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. He knows it would be simple, so easy, to deviate from God's way. But that's the last thing that he wants to do. So as he cries out to God, he's also asking God to lead him, to show him the way that he's supposed to go. He knows his enemies are close. He knows that they're trying to get him to deviate from God's plans. So he's asking God to make his ways straight before him, to let him just keep going in the direction that he's going and for that direction to be where God is, to be the way that God has for him. The way of this righteous one is God's way, which leads straight to God. And he won't be destroyed on that path. But the wicked, they will be. That's the fourth difference between the wicked and the righteous today. The wicked is destroyed by God. Look at verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. Notice where the destruction actually is in those verses. It's within them. Out of the heart of the mouth speaks. And out of their mouth, there's no truth. From their inmost self comes destruction. Their throat, it's an open grave. It's a place reeking of death. It's ready for death. It's prepared. It's even hoping for it. Their flattery leads only to ruin. The destruction of the wicked comes from within them. It comes because of who they are and what they've done. 
A few months ago, I was venting about a choice that someone had made. I saw it, I saw it coming, understood it, knew all the reasons, and also completely thought this is the wrong choice. It's absolutely the wrong thing that they should be doing. It was a wrong choice made for the wrong reasons. I could not wrap my head around why they would do this thing that they had done. Even the person making the choice, I thought they should be able to see this the way that I see it. They should be able to see where this leads. And they should be able to see that most of all. They've, they've tried similar things before. It always ends them in a worse spot. They've got to stop doing the same thing over and over because it's gotten them in this terrible spot where they keep doing that same terrible thing. And the person I was venting to, they just shrugged. <laughs> they said, Nathan, you're talking about dysfunctional people making dysfunctional choices. You're never going to understand it. And if they understood, then they do something different. But they don't understand because they can't understand. And that idea, that's really stuck with me. Dysfunctional people make dysfunctional choices. So really the problem here isn't the choice. It's not that in a vacuum they made a bad choice. It's that they are evidently, they have become the kind of people who make those bad choices. So if, that's gonna, if that situation, if that problem is going to be solved, then we have to stop trying to fix the individual choices being made and recognize that it's actually a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the person. The, the destruction, it's in them, in their inmost parts. And God so often makes us reap the consequences of our inner destruction, our guilt and our sin. He's not wrong to do this. He's actually just to do this, to have us bear our own guilt. Our own terrible counsels should result in us falling. The abundance of our transgressions should result in us being cast out. Our rebellion should reap our reward of destruction. That's the wages of the wicked. That's the wages of our actions, our wages. It is good and right for the wicked to be destroyed by God, this psalm is saying. But God, everything I'm saying concerning the wicked, that's right. The wicked is the enemy of God. He hates their evil and therefore hates them as they are in their guilt. He can't dwell with them. He can't be in any sort of true relationship with them. The wicked ultimately gets destroyed by God. That's what his wickedness has earned him. The destruction was in him. He's a dysfunctional person making dysfunctional choices, and he should reap the dysfunction of those choices as a consequences. That is what the wicked deserve. Okay, that is what I deserve. That's what you deserve. And everyone who's committed any type of e evil, that's what we deserve. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the wicked, they deserve what they get. That's the wages of sin. It's not a question here whether they deserve what they're getting or not. It's a question as to whether you've received the gift or not. Because though you have earned, though you deserve death, 
God has chosen to grant his people the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Though our wickedness makes us his enemy, his love worked out through the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us his children. It saves us. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, God has chosen to give us life through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he died in our place, that he took our wickedness with him to the cross and died with it. He died for our sins so that we then might live not in our sins, not in our wickedness, not in the death that we deserve, but in his life, but in his righteousness. You see, ultimately, the difference between the righteous and the wicked, it's not finally a matter of conduct. It's not finally a matter of whether you do good or whether you do bad, though those things are connected. Ultimately, the difference between the wicked and the righteous is whether the wicked has received the gift of Christ's righteousness to make him righteous. The righteous, they're not righteous because they nailed it. They're not righteous because they did a good job. They're not righteous because they earned their way into God's house. They're righteous because God gave them his righteousness, which then allows them to be welcomed into his presence. That's the only difference between the wicked and the righteous. All of you in this room who are counted as righteous in Christ, it's not because you did a good job. It's not because you nailed it. No, no, no. You are wicked. You're evil. You have done evil. If it were not for God, your throat right now would be an open grave. You would be reaping your own destruction. But God and his love for you, through the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, gives his righteousness to you. Which then means that you no longer actually are wicked, but you are righteous because you have the righteousness of Christ. In the language of this psalm, the difference between the wicked and the righteous is whether the wicked has received the abundance of God's steadfast love and therefore been welcomed into his home as a son. The righteous one, through what he has received from God, he is blessed by God. Because he's been saved by God. That's the final difference this morning between the wicked and the righteous. The righteous is blessed by God. Look at verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The result of the righteous one's life, it's rejoicing. Through the blessing of God that he's received, because his cries are heard by God, because he's welcome in God's house, and ultimately, foundationally, because he's received the gift of God's love through which he'll be saved. Now he can rejoice. Now he can ever sing for joy. God's protection is spread over him. He can exult in God because he loves God's name. God blesses the righteous. He covers him with favor as with a shield. He not only saves him, makes him righteous, but he sustains him. He keeps him in his righteousness. It's New Year's Eve. Some of you tonight may have parties that you go to. You may have resolutions that you make for the new year. 
Maybe you're one of those people who eat certain foods for good luck and fortune in the new year. Black-eyed peas, collard greens, whatever. Because everyone knows that the best way to make 2024 good is by making the last meal of 2023 as bad as possible. There's nowhere to go but up when you start with black-eyed peas and collard greens. But if you're really looking for favor in the new year, might I suggest that the way to get that is to be counted among the righteous? For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. That sounds like a better plan to me than peace. The favor of the righteous, it might not result in wealth. It might not result in power or prosperity or good health in 2024. In fact, so often it seems to result in the opposite. But I think it's worth way more to have God hear your cries. To be welcomed in God's house. To have your way made straight before you. To be covered, protected by the shield of God's favor. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ here for us who are so wicked is that the righteousness we need for this favor doesn't come from ourselves. Doesn't come from our performance. Doesn't rely on our behavior or perfection. It doesn't mean we have to find some way to make up for our own evil. It doesn't mean we have to appease God in his wrath toward that which he hates, our evil. The righteousness we need, it comes from Christ. It comes from his perfect life. His death in our place. His glorious resurrection for us. His gospel, which gives us his life. So let 2024 be the year that we trust in him. Let 2024 be the year that we believe in His grace and mercy through His gospel. And so be counted among the favored righteous rather than the abhorrent wicked. That's the difference between the wicked and the righteous. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to to gather with your people this week and every week for the grace that you've given us in that gift. Help for us to be people who start with you. Not just our year, but yes, our year. Not just every day, but yes, our day. Not have to be in the morning, but hopefully in the morning. Help for us to be people who start with you, who run to you, who cry to you. Help for us to be people who continue in you, who go straight to you. Help for us not to deviate from the path of the righteous when you've given us your righteousness. But help for us to continue in your righteousness, in your love, in your grace, to live the lives you've called us to live. God bless us. Give us your grace. Give us your favor. Give us the mercy we need. Open our eyes to be able to see the truth of your gospel through which we're saved. Help us to not be counted among the wicked, but instead to be counted among the righteous through you and in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.